0: Okay, let's pray together. Our Lord, we really do need to hear from you this morning, and so we ask that you would speak to us through your word. We need wisdom for this morning, and so we pray that you would enlighten our minds this morning through your word. We need correction this morning, and so I pray and I ask that you would use your word to correct our hearts, to cause us to repent of our sins Uh, We need Jesus this morning. And so we pray and we ask God that through your word, you would draw us nearer to him. And we trust you can do all of that and that you will. Uh, It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. You know, eight years ago, something uh, wonderful happened to my wife, Sharon, and I. Uh, We became uh, parents for the very first time. So eight years ago, our daughter Asha entered into this scene, and there was this beginning of a brand new phase of life for us a phase filled with, with formula and naps and, and this strange uh, obsession with the color of poop, right, for some reason started during that period of life. I mean, I literally had pieces of paper in my house that were, I was writing down color of poop all throughout those months, right? It just happened. Uh, eight years ago, our lives were just sort of drastically changed. Now, eight years later, we look back at that time and we say, you know what, we actually didn't realize how peaceful that period of our life was. For example. <laughs> it was, listen. For example, right? Feeding her was easy. Feeding her, I mean, we put some formula into a bottle, we shake it up and bam, we got breakfast, lunch, or dinner, or whatever, or snacks that she wanted to have in between, right? It was immediately ready. All we just needed to do was put some powder in a bottle. Or watching her was really easy. Watching her was easy, because even if I needed to meet with someone, and, or if I needed to catch up on my Netflix for that day, what I could do is I could just lay her on the ground. And she wasn't going anywhere, <laughs> right? She wasn't going anywhere. She wasn't gonna be upset about anything. I can just let it happen, and she didn't need anything. Multitasking was really easy back then. Or picking out clothes, right, was really easy. A, a, a white onesie and a pair of pants and Bam, you had the the outfit for the day, right? She was dressed, she was dry, and most of the time she was happy with what she was wearing. She basically wore the same exact thing every single day. It wasn't very complicated. You see, eight years ago, we look back and we say parenting was peaceful during that time. It was easy during that time. Because fast forward eight years, and let's just say that things are not as peaceful or as easy anymore because now there's three. Two more have been added into the mix and the size of our family has grown, the, the, the children themselves have grown. And with each phase that has gone on, what we have noticed is this one thing, that as our family grows, tension and complexity and messiness has also started to grow, right? As our family grows, you're seeing more complexity. It's more tense. It's more messy. What was once peaceful and easy is now tense and messy and filled with complexity. Like for example, feeding isn't as easy as it used to be. In our family, we have one child that eats anything and everything all the time. She's just constantly eating, right? And I have another child who I'm not even sure if she's eaten anything in the last two weeks. I haven't seen her actually eat something in two weeks. I mean, they're all different. They have likes and dislikes. They have preferences on temperature or texture or even types of food. Now, we can't just shake up a bottle of formula and hand it to them. No, now they want Dan Dan noodles from Han Dynasty. That's what they ask for, right? Or picking out clothes isn't as easy as it used to be. You know, now our children care about what they wear or even when they wear it. Now they want hats with logos on it or pajamas with characters on it. They have preferences on color and and cut and even kinds of clothes. Onesies and pants no longer work. Now we argue about whether her pants are skinny enough, right? That's what we're talking about in the Abraham household now. You see, in these last eight years, Sharon and I have been utterly convinced that growth inevitably brings tension and complexity and messiness. We have seen how true that is for our own family over the last eight years, and we're about to see how true that is with the church family in Acts chapter 6. You see, if you've been studying Acts chapter 6 with us, I mean, Acts as a whole with us, you may have noticed over these last several weeks how much this church has grown in a really short period of time. When we got started back in Acts chapter 1, this was a church of just 120 people. It was 120 people. By Acts 2, Acts 2, 3,000 people were added to the mix. By Acts 4, it says 5,000 men were now added to the church. And now in Acts 6, the passage that we're looking at this morning, some, some scholars believe that there are close to 20,000 people who belong to the church in Jerusalem. 20,000 people. Would you take a moment to let that sink in for a second, right? Because you can hear that and you just feel like, oh, it's just a story. Let that sink in for a second. Some I wrote, "We're a tiny little church, right? On our best Sunday, we will still have less than 200 people in this building. And could you imagine if our tiny little church grew to 20,000 people and it did that in just a few months, right? What would that be like? I mean, could you imagine what that was like? Exciting? Absolutely, right? For sure. Would it be amazing? No doubt about it. It would be amazing. But I imagine it would also be very tense, and messy, and filled with complexity. That's what I imagine. And you see, that's exactly what we're seeing here in Acts chapter 6 this morning. The church in Acts has rapidly and exponentially grown, and it's almost like you can smell the messiness and the, and the complexity in the air. Now remember, right? If you've been with us, you know that this church has already gone through messiness and complexity. It's not new to the church. I mean, there's been persecution that's come from the outside. There's been sin, the sin of hypocrisy that has developed from the inside. But what we see this morning in Acts chapter 6 is sort of a, a, a different kind of issue. This is an issue that comes in the form of a need. It comes in the form of a need. In the form, specifically, of a need that's being neglected. Now, when you hear that, you may want to say to yourself, you know, this church has already dealt with persecution. We, we saw that in chapter 4. Or this church has already been able to see two people literally being struck dead because of their sin of hypocrisy in chapter 5. I can't imagine that dealing with someone's need would be that big of a deal. Right? That's what we want to say. But seven, of my road, I want to propose to you this morning that not responding rightly to a need within the church can destroy the church as much as persecution and hypocrisy can. Hear that again. Not responding rightly to a need that develops within the church can destroy the church just as much as persecution and hypocrisy can. Because you see, as the church grows, the needs of the church will grow. And as the needs of the church grow, rightly responding to those needs will be crucial to the life of the church. And that's why I'm really grateful for this passage. Because this passage is going to teach us what it looks like for you and I to respond rightly to the ever-growing needs that we're going to find within our church. And so here's the big idea, right? If this is the the take-home, the big idea for this passage, it would be this. That rightly responding to the needs of the church requires us to two things. One, fight for unity And then secondly, to prioritize and share in ministry, right? Rightly responding to the needs of the church will require us to do two things. One, fight for unity. And then secondly, to prioritize and share in the ministry. So let's jump right in. We're looking at Acts chapter 6. It's found on page 914. I want to encourage you to pull out the Bible that's in front of you. We're going to look at just the first verse for right now. This is what it says. It says, Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Let me read that again. In these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So Dr. Luke, the author of this book, he starts off and he he says, basically, listen, hey, don't forget what's going on in the background. He says, now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, now if I could imagine what Dr. Luke's personality was like, I would imagine that it was a lot like Pastor Ajay, right? He doesn't really get overly excited about anything, doesn't really get happy when things happen. He just kind of speaks truth. Well, because I want to say that's a really calm way of saying that this church is blowing up. This church is blowing up because it really is. I mean, the number of people that are following Christ is increasing every single day. Every single day, lives are being transformed. Every single day, people are being forgiven. Every single day. Could you imagine every single day if we just kept gathering together because we had to celebrate baptisms? Can you imagine what the joy would be in that church? Could you imagine the the level of excitement that would be in that church at that time? This is crazy growth. This is crazy development. You see, this is no longer the church of 120 people that used to meet in the upper room. No, now this is a church of 20,000 people strong. And it basically happens overnight. And that's why it should come of no surprise to us that as this church grows, the needs of this church also begin to grow. In fact, we learn of a specific need in verse 1. Look at it with me. It says that the Hellenist widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Now, what does that mean? Well, you see, God has always cared for the marginalized in our society. That's how he's always operated, especially when it comes to widows. He has cared for widows. And in the Old Testament and in the church, he has always used his people to provide for people who are being marginalized, even specifically to the widows. Now, you got to understand, that was really important, because back in the day, if you were a widow, if your husband dies, widows don't have 401Ks, right? And widows won't have even life insurance if their uh, husband passes away. They didn't have government assistance that would provide help for them. They wouldn't have jobs or education that they can fall back on. Basically, if you're going to be a widow, your only hope would be if you had a son, Because this son may step in and provide for you in the situation that you're going through, but if you didn't, you were going to be in trouble. And so can you see how important this daily distribution by the church would be? Can you feel how serious this need is? Because on one hand, you have this exciting thing that's going on in the church, this exciting movement, right? The church is growing. There's so much to celebrate. There's so much to be overjoyed by. But for these women that are going through what they're going through, I mean, this is a a matter of life and death for them, right? They need their daily food. Who else is gonna provide for them? They need money for the things they need to to buy. Who else is gonna give it to them? But what we're reading in the text is that somewhere along the way, they stopped receiving what they needed. They stopped receiving what they needed. Now scholars, they have different ideas as to what was causing this breakdown of the daily distribution. They have different thoughts on what may have been uh, transpiring here, right? So some say this. Some say it was sort of a, a practical or a logistical problem. You see, consider it, right? The church is growing by leaps and bounds, and the truth is they just can't keep up with what's happening, right? And so it's just a logistical problem. Like We can, we can sense that even in our small church, we know what that's like. Do you know that eight years ago, we could fit our entire church, right? Our entire church in the community room upstairs, right? Adults, children, if you had pets, you can bring them too. We had room, right? We could fit everyone in that room. In fact, that's where we met for service every week. Week after week, we met in the community room. Now, eight years later, we can't even fit all of our children into the community room because there's a hundred of them, right? Day after day, the the Lord is adding to our number those who are being born. Uh, Not born again, just born. They're just constantly being (laughs) added to our number, and as the number of children are increasing, what we're seeing is that the needs of our children is also increasing, it's growing. And so inevitably, after eight years, many things have just fallen through the cracks. Like, for example, for the longest time, we didn't have changing tables anywhere in this building. So if you had a dirty diaper, you, you had to figure it out. We just didn't have a changing table. Or, or we didn't have the right equipment or the, the right furniture that we needed for classrooms or we didn't have a good system to drop children off in their rooms or to pick them up afterwards. You see, our tiny little church was seeing tiny little growth, and things were still falling through the cracks. So imagine what happens when a church of 120 becomes a church of 20,000. What does that look like? And some scholars say, you see, that's what's happening here. When the church was 120 people, maybe they had one or two widows in their church. Now that the church is 20,000 people, there's probably 100, maybe 200 widows in the church. And as the church continued to grow, the needs of the church continues to grow, and people start falling through the cracks. You get that? That could be one possibility. It was a logistical problem. But then some scholars say, no, that's, that's not going deep enough. right? This wasn't just a, a logistical problem. That's not what we're seeing here. This is something much deeper. Because some scholars will say this was an issue, actually, of dealing with race and ethnicity. There was actually discrimination that was going on here. Because look at the text. The text specifically says that the Hellenists were complaining against the Hebrews. Now, today, in 2018, that means nothing to us. But back then, that would be communicating something important. You see, these were actually both groups of Jewish people, the Hellenists and the Hebrews. They were both Jewish. But ethnically, they were very different. So they spoke different languages. They had different cultures. So for example, the Hellenists, they were Greek-speaking people. But the Hebrews, they were speaking Aramaic. Or the Hellenists, they they adapted Greek culture, because they were living abroad for a long time. So they adapted this new culture into their lives. But the Hebrews, they lived according to traditional uh, Jewish culture. The Hellenists were a small minority within the church, maybe 10. Pushing it 15 20%, a small minority in the church. Well, the Hebrews, they were the majority. 80 90% of the church were Hebraic Jews. And so some scholars say this wasn't just an issue of logistics that we're seeing here. Don't minimize it. No, the neglect that we're seeing here against the Hellenist widows was actually because of their ethnicity. And some of my role, can we say, we can even somewhat relate to that as well. You know, do you know that when we started eight years ago, 95% of our church was Indian, if not more. 95% of our church was Indian. That means that if you didn't have brown skin and if you didn't speak Malayalam, you were the minority in this church, right? That's what it means. Now, let me tell you, in the course of the last eight years, I've spoken to a number of people who have felt, who have felt, experienced the reality of that. Folks who felt like it was so hard for me to be able to make friends because I was an Indian. Or or people who felt like they were being left out of just things in general or conversations because they didn't understand Indian culture like everybody else did. Or even folks who were hurt by things that were said or done by Indians in our church and just had to kind of deal with it as they were here. You see, that's an awful but a real part of the history, the story of our church and can I say, seven mile road, that should break our heart. That should break our heart. Why? Because you see, when Jesus was on earth, in John chapter 17, Jesus specifically prays for the church a few days before he's about to die. And he prays specifically that you and I would be united. That even though you and I differ in a bunch of different ways, racially and ethnically and socioeconomically, though there's a bunch of differences among us, that those things would actually not divide us. But instead, that you and I, as the church, that we would become one. In fact, Jesus not only prayed for that to happen, Jesus died so that could happen. Jesus died so that that could happen. Jesus died so that those who trust in him would be adopted into a brand new family. You would genuinely be a part of a brand new family where God himself is your father. And that people who belong to this church, different races and ethnicities and backgrounds of different kinds, would genuinely and truly become brother and sister. If you're sitting next to someone right now that's different from you in a bunch of different ways, and you both have trusted in Christ, Jesus says you actually belong to each other. You're part of the same family. That's the good news of the gospel, Seven Mile Road. And you see, when discrimination exists within the church, whether we're talking about the church in acts or even talking about the church here at seven mile road that that isn't just a problem to be fixed that's a sin to be repented of because you see discrimination division is an offense to of the gospel itself jesus had to die in order for you and I to become one it required him to die So how can we continually cause division for something that cost Jesus his life? Now, the truth is that we aren't completely certain what's going on here in Acts 6, right? Again, some say it's logistics. Others say it's ethnicity. It's a problem of ethnicity. We're not sure. But what we do know is that whatever may be going on here, whatever the root may be, the need within this church had the potential to get really ugly, right? The need within this church had the potential to cause destruction within the church. How do we know that? Because the text says a complaint by the Hellenist arose against the Hebrews. A complaint. You've got to hear that word. You see, that word complaint is really significant. In fact, in the Bible, that word specifically is only used a few different times. It's a loaded word. It means much more than just complaining. No, it could actually be better described as murmuring or grumbling. There was murmuring and grumbling that was arising against the Hebrews. You see, this is what murmuring or grumbling looks like. It's like when you're so displeased about something or you're so upset by someone that you find yourself having conversations with people where you need to start whispering about what you're saying. You feel that? It's this grumbling, it's this murmuring. Or when you're so upset about something that you begin to roll your eyes whenever you see that person walking into that room. Or when you're so disturbed by something or someone that you let out a sigh every time that person opens up their mouth and says something. Do you recognize that? Do you hear what I'm saying? Have you seen that happen? Have you done that yourself? Well, the text says that that's what the Hellenists here are doing. The Hellenists were complaining. They were murmuring. They were grumbling. And this complaining, this murmuring, this grumbling was powerful enough to even destroy the church. In fact, listen to how one pastor describes this sort of thing in an article that he titles this. He says, how to wreck your church in three weeks. This is what the article is called. Listen, week one, meet for coffee this week with another member. Share your heart. Discuss how your church is changing and how you are being left out. Ask your friend who else in the church has concerns. Agree together that you must pray about it. Week two, send an email to a few other concerned members. Inform them that a groundswell of grievances is surfacing in your church. Problems have gone unaddressed for too long. Ask them to keep the matter to themselves, though, for the sake of the body. Week three, when the growing disfavor reaches a critical mass, you have won. Hope that your issues reach the ears of the elders and pray for the sake of reconciliation. The concerns of the body will be satisfied. You feel that? That's what murmuring and grumbling can feel like. And you see, it's not even just a helpful illustration here. If we're not careful, that can very much be the reality of our own lives when needs arise and needs are being neglected. Because you see, in Acts chapter 6, the issue at hand was neglected widows. But in our church, it could be something completely different. Because some of my road, I promise you, and hear this, I promise you that as our church continues to grow, there will be real needs, legitimate needs, important needs that will be neglected. I promise you. We will neglect needs that are really important to you. We will neglect needs that have a direct bearing on your life that affect you in many ways. We will do that. And when we find ourselves in such a situation, we're going to have to make a decision. We will either fight for unity in the midst of our need, or we will fight for our needs even at the cost of unity. We will either fight for unity even in the midst of our needs, or we will fight for our needs even if it costs us our unity. So can rule, I, can I remind you, Jesus had to die in order to unite us. So when a thousand failed needs are constantly pulling at us, trying to pull us apart from each other, when a thousand failed needs try really hard to try to turn us against each other, we need to remember that. Rightly responding to the needs of the church requires us to fight for unity. It requires us to fight for unity. And that leads us to our second point. You see, not only does responding to the needs of the church require us to fight for unity, it also requires us to prioritize and share in the ministry. Look at verse 2. This is what it says It says, And the 12 summoned the full number of disciples and said, It is not right. It's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. It's not right for us to give up the preaching of the word of God to serve tables, is what the apostles say. So what's going on here, right? It seems like the apostles, the 12, they probably catch wind of what's going on, this need that's in the church. And so they decide to call a members meeting like we do occasionally, right? They gather all the church together. I imagine that everyone who's in that room that day knows exactly what this meeting is about. They know what's going on because they've heard the murmuring, they've, they've seen the grumbling, and they're all sort of just sitting wondering, how are they going to fix this problem? And I imagine this is a, a larger gathering, a lot of people are probably there, and I imagine that, that in the midst of that, somebody, somebody probably raises their hand, and they say, well, listen, I have a solution to the problem. I have a solution. Uh, let the apostles do it, right? The apostles should handle this. There are leaders, they'll know what to do, Put them in charge of serving the tables. Put them in charge of taking care of the widows, this daily distribution. Now imagine this is a larger gathering, so I imagine some people hear that and they think it's a great idea, right? So you probably have some clapping, some applauding that's going on as people say that, or maybe a few amens were shouted as somebody recommends that. But all of that would be short-lived because listen to what the apostles say immediately. They say, it's not the right, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Now, you read that and you want to say, what, you guys think you're like too good to serve tables or something, right? You think serving tables is beneath you? You forget you were a fisherman. I know you're an apostle now, but you were once a fisherman, right? How this has become too big, I mean, too small for you to have to deal with. Now, listen, if we hear it that way, we need to understand we're completely missing the point of what they're saying here. Because you see, their response wasn't rooted in a matter of importance. It's actually rooted in a matter of calling, right? Listen to what one scholar says. He says this. He says, this passage does not say that prayer and ministry of the word are more important than the distribution of food. That would require us to adopt an unbiblical separation between sacred and secular, which this passage does not do. This decision was not about being spiritually elite. Rather, the apostles affirmed that they had a primary calling and that they needed to exercise spiritual gifts. What is Ajit Fernando saying here? What is he actually saying? You see, he's saying this. You know when needs come up within the church? When needs come up, there is always going to be this potential risk. What is the risk? The risk of being distracted. You see, when we become so distracted by a need that we will start forgetting what it is that we're called to do. And instead, we focus on what needs to get done. Do you hear that? When a need comes up, we can easily forget about what we're actually being called to do so that we can give our time to to do what needs to get done in that moment. And in the end, ultimately, it helps no one. Let me give you an illustration, right? How many of you saw the Sixers Celtics game on Thursday night? Last night was also horrible. But did you watch the game on Thursday night, right? That was a brutal game to watch. The Sixers, they blew a 22-point game lead. Uh, They they looked like a high school team out there playing in the NBA playoffs, right? And looking back at that game, I, I can't help but think, and others have said it too. John, you said it in a text message. You can't help but think that Joel Embiid got really distracted during that game. Now, if you know nothing about basketball, let me explain this, okay? Joel Embiid is our center. And as our center, do you know what he should be doing? Essentially, he should be doing this. He should be basically standing underneath our basket. And he should be grabbing rebounds. And he should be dunking the ball. He should be boxing people out. He should be posting people. That's my post. uh, That's how I look when I post people up. He should be posting people up, right? That's what he should be doing all day, every day. But do you know what he ended up doing? The team was falling apart, and the game was getting really messy, and there were needs all over the place on that court during that game. And so what happens? He gets distracted. And instead of doing what he was called to do, he was doing whatever it is that he thought needed to get done. So all of a sudden, you saw Embiid shooting a bunch of threes. Why is he shooting threes? He's playing point. Why is he bringing up the ball? He, he did everything besides what he's supposed to do as our center. And in the end, it helped no one. Now, in that moment, if Embiid was thinking clearly, he should have said, you know, it's not right that I should give up being a center in order to shoot threes or play point during this game. And if he did say that, no one, no one would call him arrogant. Right? No one would say, oh, so you think you're you know, too good now to bring up the ball. Is that what it is? Now, they would simply say, Embiid, he realizes, he knows what he's called to do and he's simply prioritizing his calling. And you see, that's what's happening here with the apostles as well. They were, these needs were rising up and they were doing everything they can to fight distraction. Because you see, their primary calling is to preach and to pray. And it wasn't that the needs of the widows weren't important enough. No, it instead, it meant that meeting their needs would require sacrificing their primary calling. Meeting their needs would require them to sacrifice their primary calling, and that would ultimately help no one. I wrote, that's instructive to us as well, right? I wrote, as our church continues to grow, God willing, as it continues to grow, there will be no shortage of needs at our church. But every time we face a need, it will be crucial, it will be really important for us to ask, will addressing this need distract us from our primary calling? Whether as a church as a whole or individually, will addressing this need distract me, distract us from our primary calling? Will addressing this need cause us to lose focus of what God has really called me or us to do? And if the answer is yes, then this passage is teaching us that we need to prioritize. This passage is telling us we can't get distracted. It, it means realizing that we can't do everything, even though there's a ton to do. We can't do everything. It, it means realizing that there will be times where you ha- when you can say yes, and you should, and it also means realizing that there are gonna be times when you have to say no. You can't, and when we do, It's not a matter of importance. We're not saying it's not important enough. It's a matter of calling. Rightly responding to the needs of the church requires us to prioritize our calling. And here's the thing. The reason why you can prioritize is this, because you're not the only player on the team. You're not the only player on the team. You're not the only person in this church. Rightly responding to the needs of the church requires us to prioritize and to share in the ministry. Look at verses 3 to 6. It says, Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they had said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Simba, I just wanted to see if you are paying attention, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. You see what's happening here? It's really simple. It's a wonderful reminder to us that the apostles are not the only members of the church. They're not the only members of the church. No, they're just one part of the team. Instead, the church is made up of many people, many people who play many important parts. And when these many people play their many parts, the church is able to meet its many needs. You hear that? When many people play their many parts, the church is able to meet its many needs. It's actually the same idea that Paul talks about in Romans 12. Listen to this. If it is encouraging, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. What is this text saying? What is Acts 6 saying to us? You see, the church is essentially one team with many players. Some are called to teach. Some are called to serve. And all of us have a role and a a part to play in what happens here. And you see, the apostles, they know this. And so what do they do? They ask the church to identify seven men who will serve this really important need of the widows. And listen, we have to fight against the urge to see these men as being somehow the JV team or the bench that you're pulling out, right? That's not what's going on here. The fact that they're serving tables does not at all mean that, that they're somehow dealing with something of lesser importance or that they themselves are not as important. I can't emphasize that enough. No, you see, the text says that these are men of good reputation who are filled with the Spirit. They love Jesus, right? They're filled with wisdom. They know how to deal with the things of life. In other words, these are studs. These are studs. These are people that any church would love to have be a part of the church, and let me tell you, these really are studs. For example, next week, Stephen will not, we'll see Stephen not only providing meals for the widows who are in need, next week we will see him preach so boldly in front of the Sanhedrin, this religious group of people, that he would become the first martyr of the Christian church. This same Stephen, who's gonna be passing out plates and distributing food, will be the first martyr of the Christian church. Stud. Or consider Philip. Philip will not only provide meals for these widows, which he should because it's important, we will also see him in Acts chapter 8. He's going to preach the gospel to an Ethiopian eunuch. And through Philip's testimony, consider this, the gospel reaches Africa. The same man who's passing out plates and food is no scrub. Through his mouth, Africa receives the gospel. He's a stud. You see, not JV, not of lesser importance, genuine studs. Studs who are ready to serve in whatever way God calls them to serve. You know, scholars, they they argue about whether this is where the the office of deacon, the, the role of deacon is where this is where it first gets started in the Bible. They, they argue about that. Now, we don't have time to discuss that this morning, but I will say this. Whether they're deacons or not, they're doing the work of deacons. You see, the word deacon just simply means servant. In fact, Jesus uses the word to describe himself. In Mark chapter 10, he says, for the Son of Man did not come to be deaconed, but to deacon, is what Jesus says. In other words, Jesus himself didn't come to be served, But to serve, Jesus was the first deacon, right? Jesus was the first deacon, and he he obviously was no JV player. In fact, he so serves us that he lays down his life so that we could be provided for in our needs. That's the kind of servant he is. And you see, these guys are just trying to imitate their Savior. These are guys, these are studs who are ready to serve in whatever way that God calls them to. And someone wrote, can I say this, and I really mean it. I am so glad that our tiny little church is so filled with studs who are ready to serve in whatever way that God calls them to. I'm so grateful for that. Our church is filled with studs who are ready to serve in whatever way that God calls them to. Like, I, I thank God for Laura Gosker Laura Gosker, week after week. I don't know if you guys know who Laura is or if you know about this. Laura Gosker, week after week, gets here at ch- to church at 8.30 in the morning. You know why she gets here? She's, she gets here so that she can set up communion for us for both services. How old is Laura now? 81, what? 91. 91. 8.30 in the morning. She comes week after week to set up communion for us. Stud. Or I can thank God for Julie George, right? Julie, who for countless years, whenever someone gets sick or or has a baby or is in need, she will be the one to set up a meal train so that they could be provided for during their difficult time of life or their situation in life during that time. I think she's been doing that since the beginning. Behind the scenes, nobody even knows about it. They just know that it happens. Meals land at their door. Stud. I want to thank God for Deacon Kurt, who week after week takes care of every minute detail. Do you know how these baskets get up to this front row every week? Kurt puts it there. Do you know how 50 other things happen here at the church every week? Kurt does it. Behind the scenes, no one ever knows about it. But week after week, he serves, he's a stud. Or thank God for Deacon Dennis, who since day one of Seven Mile Road, has been faithfully overseeing our finances since day zero. And that he does that because our pastors are utterly incompetent in that area, right? We have no clue what we're doing. But since we've got started, that's what he does. Behind the scenes, he does work. None of us even know about it. You see, I could go on forever. A church, we are a church by God's help filled with studs who are ready to serve. Over these eight years, I have seen need after need being met by servant after servant that's what i've seen many people playing their many parts allowing the church to meet its many needs summer road you have wonderfully you have wonderfully i hope you hear that you have wonderfully shared in the ministry of this church so let me close by simply asking this right why is this why is this so important why is this even important Why should we respond to the needs of our church by fighting for unity or prioritizing and and sharing in the ministry? Look at verse 7. It says, And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Because you see, why is this important? This is important Because what we see God doing in verse 7, he's still doing that kind of stuff today. What we see God accomplishing in verse 7, he still accomplishes today. Even today, God's word is continuing to increase throughout the entire world. Even today, disciples are being multiplied in cities across the globe. Even today, The most unlikely of people, like the priests who are mentioned here in verse 7, these priests in chapter 4 were fighting against the church. Now it says that they're the disciples of the church, right? Even today, the most unlikely of people are still being saved. And 7 Mile Road, that's our prayer as well. We realize, right, that as the church grows, its needs will grow. And along with growth will come tension and complexity and messiness of all kinds. But our prayer is that no obstacles, whether inside of the church or from the outside of the church, will hinder the word of God at Seven Mile Road. No obstacles. That we would be such a church that so fights for unity and prioritizes and shares in ministry that today those who are currently not followers of Christ would become his disciples. Even the most unlikely of them, people that live on our block, who belong to our family, people that we would never expect could come and be a part of the body of Christ because we fight for unity and prioritize and share our ministry. We should pray. We should pray that God would make that a reality in our church. Let's pray together. Our Lord, we really do pray that, we really do, that you would prevent any obstacle, whether inside the church or outside the church, to hinder the word of God at Seven Mile Road. We genuinely desire for more and more people in our city to become disciples of Christ. We pray that, Lord, people in our families, people who are friends, people who live on our block, The most unlikely of people, we pray that their lives would be transformed by you. And so we pray and we ask that you would keep us united, help there not to be division or discord among us. Jesus, you really did die so that we could be one. And so help us to not destroy the very thing that cost you your life. And help us to serve. Jesus, we thank you that you are the first servant, the first deacon of the church that you served us even by laying down your life for us. So help us to serve in that way, to lay down our lives for the needs of others. And we really do thank you for the many examples of people who live like that at our church. You have blessed us tremendously through their lives, and we ask that you would help us to keep growing as servants who prioritize our calling and share in the ministry Lord, we really do pray and ask that you would do even more than we even know how to ask. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.